This morning, we are going to continue in our study of Redeemer. We have looked over the past three weeks in uh, a couple different areas. The first two weeks, we laid a little bit of a foundation onto number one, why we needed a Redeemer, and that was the fall of man, uh, Adam and Eve in the garden. Then we talked about the good news, the answer that the Redeemer has come, and his name is Jesus. And Thomas, during that message, talked about how uh, in the Old Testament and leading up to the birth of Jesus Christ, that there were so many peaks and valleys of people, you know, God trying to restore the people and him working with them and them going up and down. And we'll, we'll get a little bit further into that here in just a few moments. But then last week we talked about the fact that the, you know, the gospel, the answer, the good news, it requires a response from us. And we looked at a biblical word called repentance. And we talked about how important it was for us to understand from a biblical standpoint what repentance truly means. And we, we kind of compared and contrasted two different types of repentance. We talked about worldly repentance, which was the horizontal repentance. And then we talked about vertical repentance, which is repenting to God and that, how that being the biblical response of turning our life towards Christ and turning, um, the, moving the direction of where we're going in our lives. If you didn't hear that, uh, any of those, I encourage you to go back uh, on our YouTube channel, on our podcast. Um, they're all there, and, and it's really kind of building on itself. But this morning, we are going to look at the result. Actually, over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at the result of this response of repentance. When we repent vertically, in a biblical sense of the word repentance, then there is results that take place or fruit that happens in our lives. There are things that happen once we repent in a biblical sense. Now, I heard, um, I had a gentleman in my first church tell me, um, it wasn't too long, it may have actually been after my first sermon, he came up to me and he said, Preacher, I'm going to give you a little bit of a tip. I said, all right, this is going to be good, I can tell already. He said, if the preacher doesn't get to Scripture within the first five minutes of the sermon, I'm done. And I mostly agree with that. Uh, but this morning, I'm going to kind of set, just for a few moments, um, a priority for us for these next three weeks. And then we'll get into our Scripture for the day. You know, when, when Rachel was born, it was, a, you know, it was obviously a life-changing um, moment uh, for Kim and myself and you know as she began to grow up she developed passions she began to develop these areas of interest you know she began to the she began to develop these things that her focus started going towards and I discovered a new realm and a new dimension of parenting and that new realm and new dimension is called leverage when your child develops a passion and something they're really interested in, then all of a sudden there is built-in leverage as a parent. Because when they don't have anything, you know, you could discipline her, you could ground her, you could put her in time out. She's like, whatever. You know, but then once she began to get interested in things, then you've got a little bit of leverage that you can take these areas of passion away, these areas of interest. And you, know, you can think I'm a horrible parent for doing that, but I'm just going to say hypocrites. If you're in here as a parent and you think I'm a horrible parent because all y'all have done the same thing and you know you have. But I want us to just talk for a few moments. I, I kind of finished my message last week with, with kind of this thought and this message that 
Jesus Christ cannot be a supplement to your life. Jesus Christ cannot be an addition to your life. He cannot come in and just bolt on to what you have going in your life. No, we all have areas of passion. We all have areas of interest. We all have things that we enjoy doing. The, par- the problem that we have is that we get so caught up in the busyness of life. And, this, and, 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 and you, you may be kind of struggling with this same internal thing coming out you know, as we're kind of returning back to areas of life that are beginning to feel just a little bit normal, you know, out of being kind of quarantined. Does anybody just miss some elements of the full-on quarantine (laughs) of just being there and just being there? And not having all of this, you know, it was so nice not to have my calendar open all the time and determining what exactly my day was going to look like. But we get these things and we begin to justify these. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say right up front that I know that I am guilty of what I'm going to be preaching about today. I know that I have done these things in the past and I on some level continue to do these things. But I am hoping that this sermon this morning morning challenges you in your relationship with Jesus Christ. A couple uh, statistics that I kind of want to throw out to you guys to set this up is Brooke was talking about missions and continuing to give. An interesting statistic that was released by the Barna Group, so it's a fairly accurate and fairly dependable statistic. This wasn't a Wikipedia or Google internet search just to find a stat. This is the Barna Group. They said that in the year of 2019, that in America, members of evangelical churches, which is what we are a part of, we are a form of an evangelical church, in 2019, evangelicals spent more money on Halloween costumes for their pets than what they gave into missions. Let that one sink in for just a minute. In 2019, American evangelicals spent more money on costumes for Halloween for their pets than what they gave into the mission field. The average church member who describes themselves as a faithful church goer in the year 2019 averaged 1.6 Sundays a month in attendance to church. 1.6. The average believer in America Spends less than two hours or two minutes a day in prayer. I wish it was two hours. <laughs> Spends less than two minutes a day in prayer. The average pastor in America spends less than four minutes a day in prayer. Where are our priorities? Where is our focus? The thing that we do, that we're so guilty of, is we want to take Jesus Christ and we want to have Him as a supplement to our lives. We want to try to have Him in every aspect of our lives. Basically, we don't want to give up anything. We don't want to have to sacrifice anything. We don't want to have to lay anything down. We're just trying to see if we can fit Jesus into our already crazy life. Guys, Jesus Christ will not be an addition to your life. He will not be a supplement to your life. He will not be bolted on and taken along for the ride just as a neat little hood ornament in the vehicle of your Christianity. If you are doing that, then I would challenge the fact of whether you are actually a Christian or not. 
Because Jesus, over and over again in the New Testament, was talking about laying down things. Let the dead bury the dead. Don't even go back to say goodbye to your family. Don't worry about your money. You've got to give everything up for me. Jesus never gave that pattern of, he never once looked at somebody and said, listen, I really know that you enjoy that four hours a day you spend on social media. So I'll tell you what, let's compromise. Let's knock it down to three hours a day on social media, and I'll be fine with that. Jesus never said that, hey, go ahead, miss as many Sundays as you want to. That's fine because you can chase a ball team. You can chase a band. You can chase a ROTC program. You can ch go to every ball field, every gymnasium, every court, every field, every auditorium. You can go ahead and you can do that, and I'll be just fine. Just kind of remember me as you're going. And again, guilty as charged. But Jesus will not be a supplement he will not be an addition to our lives. I love you guys. I really do. So let's turn to the book of Romans. We'll be reading out of we'll be reading this morning. We're going to be reading out of Romans chapter eight, and I'm going to be reading out of the ESV, the English Standard Version. Uh, if you don't have your Bible with you, feel free to look it up on your phone, or these scriptures will be on the screen also. So I, I just kind of want us to enter into these next three weeks with that understanding that Jesus will not be an addition. He can't be just a supplement in your life. He has to be your life, period. That's what he wants. That's what he desires. That's what he commands us to do. So Romans chapter 8, we're going to be reading verses 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Will you pray with me this morning? God, thank you for uh, the presence that we feel in your house this morning. God, thank you for the, um, just the faithfulness, the grace, the mercy that you have towards us. God, when, when we have all been guilty of tagging you onto our lives instead of sacrificing um, ourselves to you, everything that we have for you, that God, um, God, thank you for your mercy and your grace uh, for doing that. God, I pray that during this time, that you would open our hearts, open our ears, open our minds to receive what you would have to say to us. And God, I ask that you inspire me and, and allow your Holy Spirit to speak through me this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we read this passage out of Romans, if any of you, whenever I read the words foreknowledge and predestination, kind of went, oh, <laughs> it's okay. It's normal, all right? It happens. Don't worry, we're, we're not going to be diving into those this morning. It's a, it's a big thing, it's an important thing, but for this, this message, for where we're going, I'm not going to be diving into that. But I do want us to look at one word this morning. It's called justification. I want us to look at what it means to be biblically justified, to be justified in the eyes of God. Justification in a biblical sense means to be made legally declared innocent. 
So I'm going to go back for just a little bit, and I'm going to kind of uh, echo Pastor Thomas's synopsis of the Old Testament as he went through that, because I want us to see what justification looked like or didn't look like in the Old Testament. One of the statements that he made several times in his message was that God is not only infinitely good, but God is also infinitely just. And I want to, as we go through this message, I want to submit to you this thought, and I want you to have this thought in the forefront of your thinking, that if God would have justified, would have declared anyone innocent in his life without Jesus Christ, God would have been guilty of being a crooked judge. If he would have declared anyone to be legally innocent without Jesus' sacrifice, God would be a corrupt judge. So let's track a little bit through the Old Testament. We kind of begin after the fall of man. We can, we can have so many different different characters that we can pull from in the Old Testament. But one of them that I want to start with is Abraham. You know, the father of faith. You know, the father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had father Abraham. You know, I am one of them. So are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Anybody do that song when you were young? Anybody still maybe do that song when nobody's home and you're just walking through the house? Anyhow, Abraham, who is the father of faith, who's mentioned over and over and over again in the New Testament after Jesus, talking about how much faith that Abraham had. He was the one that God made the covenant through, the promise through. Abraham, a patriarch, fell woefully short. So God couldn't find someone in Abraham who was sinless, someone who he could say that I can justify all peoples through this person. Then we can move on to Joseph. Joseph, who was sold into slavery. Joseph, who spent his, the majority of his lifetime in Egypt serving in, in a long span of that as, as second in command in this nation. Joseph, the one who provided the interpretation of the dreams of Pharaoh that, that saved a nation through a drought and actually not only saved that nation, but saved the, Israel, the nation of Israel as well. This Joseph, who was such a godly man, who lived and served so well, who forgave family and brothers who betrayed him and stabbed him in the back and left him for dead. Joseph, this man, not good enough. Not good enough. Moses, the deliverer. And, and it's interesting because we look at these Old Testament characters and we think about how much of a pinnacle that they were and how far we are from them. Understand that even at man's best, we fall woefully short. Because Joseph, out of creating this system that saved nations, it was also a system that led to the captivity of the Israel nation. Do you realize that? That it was actually the system that Joseph put in place in Egypt that brought the nation of Israel into captivity and bondage in the land of Egypt. That's the reason they were there. That's the reason this next man needed to be raised up. Called His name was Moses. Came in as a deliverer of the people of, of Israel. And he brought them out of Egypt. Moses, the man who led them through the wilderness. Moses that led them to the edge of the promised land. Moses, the man who met with God. The man that we read about that. It was was able to see the goodness and the glory of God pass by him who come down with his face so radiant and shining that the people couldn't even look at him. Moses, the man who had encountered God like never before, still not good enough. Then you could look at King David, who the Bible describes as 
the man who was after God's own heart still fell woefully short as one of the pinnacle moments in the nation of Israel's history that they still to this day look back on as the high watermark for their nation still fell woefully short in his sin and his iniquities. His son, King Solomon, wisest man ever, that's what he asked of God, and he found favor with God. You do realize that Solomon did not end well, right? Even the wisest man on this earth falls woefully short. And we could list through the the prophets. We could talk about Elijah, the man who called down fire. The man who, under the inspiration of God's Spirit, ended a drought. (laughs) Also commanded a mama bear to come out and attack and maul a bunch of teenage boys who were making fun of him. Did you all know that? They were calling him like Baldy. He didn't like it. He's like, oh, look, there's a bear. (laughs) Get him. I am glad we don't have that happening now because I'm not sure any of us would still be around. There'd be bears running around everywhere. All of this for us to understand that man falls woefully short. And we talked about, whenever we talked in, I believe it was Psalm 110, we talked about how that whenever we feel like we are the answer to our sin problem, and can play our own redeemer and our own vehicle of restoration, then we are devaluing our sin. The power that sin has in our life. Make no mistake, don't ever scoff at sin in your life. Don't ever act like it's not a big deal. Don't ever act like it doesn't mean anything. Sin is a big deal. Sin is the reason that there's separation between us and God. Sin is the reason that Jesus had to come. Sin equals death. Sin is a big deal in our lives. So we talked about that last week. We talked about that in the element of repentance. Now I want to submit something to you. Far too many of us, I believe, are just satisfied with having our sins forgiven. Do you realize that the forgiveness of sin is just the first step into the Christian life? The story doesn't end there. Our lives continue. It's not that we get saved, we get forgiven of our sin, then we wait for heaven. It doesn't work like that. And you guys know how much that I love Walmart. Okay, So it pains me to have to use this type of illustration because I'm pretty, pretty convinced that evil forces um, operate Walmart. I don't know that for sure, but I'm pretty certain of it. But have you ever, you know, you you walk into Walmart and you've got that first automatic like Jedi door that you walk into there, you know, it just opens by itself. You don't have to move it. Rachel gets so frustrated and so embarrassed at me because I'm like walking up to it going. And then I'll walk in and there's another one. I'm like, she's like, dad, it's true. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) But just being forgiven of our sins is just like walking into that first door at Walmart and then stopping. And then seeing all the things that God has in store for us through that other door, but us refusing to take a step into it. And then we get frustrated when we see people in there getting things that we need or things that we want or blessings from God. And we we kind of get, get mad at God and begin to curse God. It's like, why? Why? Why is this not happening to me? And for some of you college students in here, here's here's kind of what I want to equate justification to this morning. 
Because Jesus came, died, a perfect, he came and lived a perfect life, was murdered, was unjustly accused, was beaten, was tormented, was spat upon, was mocked. And all of a sudden, God saying you're innocent of all charges is now not only okay, but it's justifiable. Because there is someone who has stood in our place and that God doesn't look at us anymore when we are in Jesus Christ. When we repent, when we turn our lives over to Him, when we, when we give our hearts to Jesus in faith and our mouth confess and we're baptized and we're following after Jesus, then we are in Christ. So God, who could not take one person and say that I'm going to allow them to justify for everyone else while there was still sin in their lives, now has this perfect example that he says it's through him that you are made justified. That's how you can stand in front of me. God, who commands and expects perfection, has now given us a vehicle to enter into the perfection. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not saying that you're perfect. I was just getting ready to ask my wife if she thought that I was perfect, but she's not here. Oh, the, uh, she had to step out. But I had a, a gentleman one time, every time that I asked him how he was doing, he would say, I'm perfect, but getting better. I'm like, I have no clue what that means. And I don't think I agree with it at all. But good for you, man. But I kind of understand that. There's a level to this that we are somehow, and this blows my mind about the goodness of God, we are somehow, through Jesus Christ, this imperfect, fallible, sin-filled flesh is made perfect through Jesus Christ. And there's a there's a big difference between just having Jesus Christ as your Savior and having Jesus as your Lord. Okay, so I know that we've got a few from, from KCU here this morning. We've got Kentucky Wesleyan represented. Any other colleges, universities represented here this morning? Anyone? Anyone? Okay, so in this semester, if you fail all of your classes, please don't, by the way, <laughs> in particularly one of you, okay? <laughs> But you get to the end of the semester, and the, the professor goes, listen, tell you what, I'm not, I'm not going to count that against you, okay? All of these, we've got, we may have them rejoicing here in just a moment, I don't know. But these students, we're not going to hold these failing grades against you, okay? Does that mean that you can stop and that you're completely done and that means you're graduated now? Is that what that means? No, that just means that a terrible semester has been forgiven, right? You still have to do things. You still have to follow a path. You still have to live a certain way and be in class. You need to study um, and not do. I don't know if you all have seen that gift or not, but the, the little boy who it says, you know, me before two hours before every exam, he's got like the book opened up in front of him. He's going. Just trying to absorb it. No, there's, we still have things we have to do. So if you would, in that note, turn to the book of Galatians. Going to chapter 2. I'm trying to lay out this a little bit quickly for us this morning, the biblical, what biblical justification is. Galatians chapter 2, starting with verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now pause there. You and I 
we're Gentile sinners. Okay? We are Gentile sinners. Verse 16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So that gives us a compass for the entirety of the Old Testament that we talked about and into the beginning of the New Testament that no one is going to be justified in God's sight except through faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. It's not by you being a good person. It's not by you being a better person. It's not by you being a not-so-bad person. You know, because we like to make that and play that comparison game, right? It's like, listen, I know I'm not what what I really need to be, but have you seen this one here? You know, we like to play that comparison game. It makes us feel a little bit better. Well, at least I'm not this. I know I'm not that, but hey, I could be this over here. And it's not anything that we could do. Maybe if I could just give a little bit more. Maybe if I could just sing a little bit louder. Maybe if I could just get up a little bit earlier. Maybe if I worked a little bit harder. Maybe if I was a better husband. Maybe if I was a better wife. Maybe if I was a better father or mother. Maybe if I was a better boss or a better employee. Maybe if I did these things, then maybe, maybe I will be justified in God's sight. Can I tell you that John the Baptist, who Jesus Christ referred to himself, he said John the Baptist was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. John the Baptist was in awe of Jesus Christ when he came and he saw him and whenever he was baptized. Matter of fact, John didn't want to baptize Jesus because he says, here comes a man whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. This is the greatest. This is the pinnacle of what the Old Testament law life had to offer. And he was saying, I am nothing compared to this man so it's not by any work that we can do it's not by making ourselves better being better uh, you know make yourself better by following these eight easy steps it's it's not that that's not what justifies us now listen be a better person please i'm not going to mention any names but i'm seeing some faces be better but don't ever hang your hopes on you becoming better, justifying you in the sight of God. Because remember, justification is being found legally innocent in the sight of God. There is not any of us in here that if you remove Jesus Christ from our lives, none of us even come close to being found innocent. None of us. Now, turn to Titus. New Testament book of Titus may not have even known that there was a Titus. That's okay. Listen, table of contents is not a bad thing. It can be your best friend, and it's feel free. But Titus is a, is a smaller book towards the end of the New Testament, and it's going to be up here on the screen, and I'm going to kind of use this to wrap this up. Bless you. Titus, chapter 3, starting with verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedience, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Boy, we were in good shape, weren't we? You know, that's what, when I ever asked Brett to read that passage this morning as he opened up, I said, hey man, it's a real encouraging one this morning. (laughs) Basically, Brett could have gotten up here and said, hey, y'all were trash, all right? But Jesus has come and justified you, all right? That's basically what he's saying. All right, so here we have this horrible, you were foolish, disobedient, led astray, you were slaves to various passions and pleasures, uh, you know, passing our days in malice and envy. You were hated by others and you hated each other. 
And then the next verse is one of the most beautiful verses you'll ever encounter in Scripture when it says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. And isn't that an awesome picture? Isn't that an awesome thought? Because I'm kind of expecting with all of this, man, you're all terrible. God comes in lightning and thunder and rains down judgment on everyone. No, that's not how he came. Paul's telling Titus here in this letter that it was the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. And what did he do? Verse 5, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. Please underline, highlight anything that you can do in your Bible. Do that with this passage. It's not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Isn't that an awesome passage of Scripture? I mean, that's just awesome. So we're justified by His grace so that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Can I submit to you, just have you thinking about this, forgiveness is an absolute necessity. But according to this passage out of Titus here, so is biblical, godly justification because it is through being justified by his grace that we become heirs according to the hope of eternal life but there's no justification without forgiveness there's no forgiveness true forgiveness without biblical repentance and there's none of any of it without being in christ jesus our savior and our lord when i ask the praise team if they would to come back up this morning Over the next couple weeks, there's two more steps to this result process because really, when we're justified, that leads us into something else. We can't live a life of continually being justified in Christ, that, that righteousness, without knowing who we are. So next week, we're going to look at our identity by looking at the biblical word adoption. And then we're going to take the following week and we're going to look at sanctification. So again, these are some churchy words like justification, repentance, you know, sanctification. But they're so very critical to our walk with Jesus Christ. Because without Him, there's no repentance, there's no forgiveness, and there's no justification in our faith in Him. Let's pray.